This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 118. Today on our show, comedian Rajiv Sakyal. I bombed in front of a thousand people at the University of Cincinnati, which was my school, and I had already transferred there from Case Western, so I couldn't transfer again. I was so embarrassed that I was going to quit school because everybody saw me do it. I go backstage. I'm holding the microphone. I hand it to Dave Chappelle. And I go, I'm so sorry. And he goes, what's your name, man? And I'm like, uh, you know, don't worry about my name. I'm just going to go into a corner and crawl and die. As many of you know, one of the owners of Cincy Shirts, Josh Sneed, gave up a career at P&G to pursue stand-up comedy many years ago. But he's not the only person to do that. Indeed, there are a few others, including Fairfield native Rajiv Satyal, who joins us via Skype from Los Angeles to discuss his journey from good corporate job to stand-up comic. He also discusses working with Dave Chappelle, combining his comedy and marketing backgrounds for a time there, embracing his Indian heritage while also maintaining a mainstream comedy career, and there's tea, a rather intense, shall we say, run-in with another comic. You're going to want to hear about that. And uh, Josh wasn't keen on this comic either. So, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of tea there. And I don't think either one of them ever told uh, their particular stories about this comedian. Hmm, stay tuned. So if you've been liking the podcast, you can support it via PayPal or Venmo, of course. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and please chip in whatever you feel is fair. And also be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Rajiv Satyal. Cincy.com in Cincinnati. What's up, man? Dude, been a long time. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, you too, dude. So as uh, suficionados of Cincinnati comedy know, there are at least three guys, and it's guys in this case, there may be a gal, we don't know, uh, who famously worked for Procter & Gamble and famously uh, decided to pursue stand-up comedy instead and uh we've got two of the three of them on right now <laughs> we need to get the third guy yeah we should uh we should reach out to greg absolutely there's got to be more right there's there has to be more than just the three of us i mean we it's all know each other to think that there should be more i think that's hilarious you know josh really can't go more than three sentences without making me laugh so it's funny that he's <laughs> got to be at least more but you know what there is there's a guy named drew tarvin who was in it just like josh and he lives in new york and he's been doing comedy full-time for a long time too but i think josh you were the first, or greg was the first one to make the leap right yeah, he uh, Greg ran the open mic night. He was legitimately the first person I ever met in stand up because he ran the open mic at Go Bananas when I started. And uh-huh. the only reason that I took it over was because Greg was going to do stand up full time. I remember helping him pack up his apartment downtown because uh, he was going to be heading out on the road and wasn't going to be staying there anymore. Wow. And uh, he wound up moving to Houston to pursue. So he's kind of a Cincinnati slash Houston guy, even though he's from St. Louis. Yeah, I think he really probably got his footing here. Yeah. Uh, he certainly ran ran everything. And then I, it was just sort of thrown in my lap because he was too busy to do it anymore. And I think that that was a combination of his his job at P&G at the time as well as how much external uh, stand-up work he was getting outside of Go Bananas. But I jumped at the opportunity because I was so new that I just wanted stage time. And it wasn't like it is today where there's two comedy clubs and 10 different bars and coffee shops doing comedy shows. It was like if you didn't get on stage at Go Bananas, you didn't get on stage. And so the only reason that I took over the 
open mic night duties was that I could make sure that I got stage time. But to look back and think about like how many friends I've made and how many people got started in the time that I ran the open mic, it's crazy. And obviously Rajiv's a big part of that. Or Greg Warren is my my open mic grandfather because he was running it when you started. You were running it when I started. And Greg Warren had quite a career at the Peach. He did really well. He was a band three. They measured managers by bands and entry level was one or two if you're in marketing. And he was promoted a couple of times. So it wasn't like he was Josh Sneed over there. (laughs) Yeah, I was a rubber band. I didn't know that because (laughs) – I didn't know that because the way Greg, Greg always kind of downplays it. The last time I spoke to him and we were chatting about that because my wife works for, for P&G. So I, I know of the lingo of which you speak. And uh, yes. But he he said, oh, I wish I could have said I took my job seriously. So he really kind of downplays his uh, his career uh, there. But well, I didn't know he was a band well, three. Put it, wow. Put it this way. Yeah, put it this way. Uh, he worked on Pringles. And right after he left, they sold the brand. So <laughs> what does that say about how important he was to – <laughs> to Pringles is that when he left they're like we can't we just can't do this anymore without Greg let's just sell it let's give it to Smuckers I wonder if it was his idea to stick him in tennis ball cans ah <laughs> uh, great great it's one, oh, one of the best jokes you know it's funny though it's it's because Greg is successful in comedy that he downplays his time at P&G because if he were not doing well in comedy, he'd be telling war stories about what a great career he had at P&G and how he really shouldn't have given it up. He'd have his legs on the table and his hands behind his head just crying, you know, but it's because he's doing well. That's why he can play it down. He's got that luxury. I was very like when I when I took over the open mic, I turned it into the funniest person in Cincinnati contest because my biggest complaint was that we had the same people every week. Like it was every single week. It was the same people and none of them were inviting other people to come. So I thought that the contest would be a good way to get new blood in the comedy club because what I noticed and myself and Rajiv are good examples of this is like when someone is just starting and doing it for the first time and they have any kind of a network, they invite everyone that they know to come watch them. And so I thought if we had like four or five of those type people getting on stage that our open mic nights would have a much bigger audience than 10 to 15 that we had been getting. And so I was reaching out to like the Enquirer and City Beat and stuff, trying to get the word out, you know, because this is pre social media, trying to get the word out about the contest. And I was very open about the fact that I had a day job at PNG. I don't know that Greg was or wasn't open about it, but I don't feel like he did. He went out of his way to make those two worlds collide. And like I embraced it. And so I. You know, a lot of people after me would say, like, I decided to try it because I saw that you had a day job that was a really good day job and you could do it. So I wanted to do it. And I know none of the guys that I started with had like, quote unquote, really good day jobs. So I'm curious, Rajiv, like when you like what made you want to start? Was it something you had always wanted to do or like what what got you to go on stage the very first time? It's a great question. And it's funny how you say that you changed it into the funniest person in Cincinnati contest. I didn't know that. It was a brilliant move by you and leave it to a PNG guy to come up with a great marketing idea. <laughs> but I, you know, was thinking about it. It's a great idea. And I was thinking about when I did my first solo show out here in LA, you know, I was racked by nerves the first night right before I went on stage because it occurred to me that I was inviting everybody I know to watch me do something I've never done before. And it made me feel better a few minutes later when I realized I've been doing that since I was doing this with Josh Sneed. I mean, like since I did The Funniest Person, I invited what I had 65 people come the first night. I still remember that. And it was, you know, a large part when when you were running it and you were really supportive. Although one of the funniest uh, clownings I ever got was, uh, I think it was the second you know, I killed the first time out, which is pretty common. But the second time I bombed, or maybe it was the third time. And I remember you get up on stage and you're like, give it up for Rajiv. He, he tried. 
I apologize for everything that I ever said to anyone between the first time I went on stage until probably three years ago, because I just lacked total perspective of like, I guess I had forgotten, like when you're that young, like you're just so cocky, like, and I hate that I was ever at a point in my life or my career where I just assumed that whatever I was doing was going to be that for the rest of my life. Like I look back at some of the opportunities I had with like Larry, the cable guy and Ron white. And it's like, I know at the time that I didn't appreciate them as much as I do now, because I just, at the time assumed that was going to be the new normal for me, you know? And so when I hear stuff like that, like, I just go, you know what? Like, what a jerk thing to do, even if it's in jest. Cause you know, we're friends. Like, I feel like, you know, like, I feel like I would have an easier time saying it now than back then, but you know what I mean? It's just like, I look yeah. back and it's like, don't do that. Like if I, if I had advice for like a young comic, I'd say, don't do that kind of stuff because everybody. <laughs> Everybody has nights like that. My second time was terrible. Well, Carl, yeah. either Carl Spath or Tom Thakar, I can't remember which one of them it was. I'm friendly with both of those guys, called me the whitest comedian they'd ever seen when I left the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and the, but they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong, ladies and gentlemen. And it's, it's just like this unfounded attitude that I, when I hear stuff like that, like I'm glad that you laugh about it now. But I so cringe fun. thinking that I was. Um, it's so funny. And, you know, I. On that tip, I didn't answer your question. I'll answer your question about what what prompted me to get on stage. But I, I do have to extend on that because I don't know if it was Eddie Ift who did it or who told me about it. But somebody did it to somebody. And I'm not trying to be coy. I really don't know. I wasn't there. But somebody told me a war story about how some comic was bringing up somebody whom he legitimately did not like. And so he goes, your next comic coming to the stage was an Aspen during the Montreal Comedy Festival, give it up for. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what a great, what a what a burn for people who don't know. Those are two different comedy festivals, and like it was. <laughs> I can't even put into words for people who aren't comics how funny that is. But God, that's <laughs> so wrong. It's so wrong. I uh, to answer your question, you know, it's funny. When you talk about that stuff, because listening to what was it, uh, Talking Funny on HBO, which is the modern day Bible, as far as I'm concerned, where Ricky Gervais sat down with Louis C.K., rest in peace, Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> and uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad that got a laugh. And, uh, and he's, he's on my Mount Rushmore, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not letting that go. Well, we can come back to that. But my point being that Ricky Gervais asked the question, he just goes, you know, is it is it fair to go up there and just be funny? And the other guys will look at him like, what do you mean? But I know what he means because the first time I went up there, I go bananas and Josh, you had brought me to the stage. You know, Greg Warren used to do a bit about glamour shots and it was so funny. And for some reason, I had a dollar, a loose dollar bill in my pocket and there was a woman in the front row who very much had that glamour shots kind of vibe. And she heckled me and I went glamour shots over here and I tossed her a dollar. And it was the biggest laugh of the whole thing. And it was a callback to another comic set. And that's just not done. But it was so much fun. That is really funny. It was fun. My brother found the article that I'm sure you placed, the funniest person in Cincinnati contest, and I entered it and I made the semifinals, and the next year I won it. That's my one-sentence entrance into stand-up comedy, and, you know, it all started in Cincinnati. Well, there is a but backstory, what, though. But that... what made you – yeah, what, what, but what made you sign up? Did you just say, I make people laugh, I can do this, or is it like now's my chance, I've always dreamt of doing this, or someone convinced you to try it? That's a great question. And by the way, do you love how I gave you five minutes unrelated to your question? And then to answer your question, I gave you 20 seconds that didn't answer your question. I like how you so, – my favorite part is that you clarified the second part of it as though it was an answer and it also was not an answer. You're like, but to answer your question, here's something else that doesn't answer your question. You're got, you have a future in politics. Oh, clearly. Clearly. We, we could talk about that. So – my brother, Rakesh Sathyal, is an author. He's an editor in New York City, a publisher for Simon & Schuster, but he also is an author, and he's had a couple of books come out. He actually has more TV credits than I do, or, or credits in general. He was on NPR. He was revealed by, reviewed by the New York Times. He wasn't revealed. He revealed himself. He came out as a gay man. But he was on Seth Meyers for his books, 
and he's doing really well with that. So really funny guy as well. And I think it's common. And I don't know, Josh and PF, if this is true for you guys, but I think a lot of comics have a funnier sibling. And Rakesh is definitely a really, really hilarious storyteller and raconteur in general. And he showed it to me. He goes, hey, man, why don't you enter this? And I was like, why? He goes, well, you're funny. And you've been writing material for a long time. And I, and I was. I was thinking maybe I'd write a book. And it didn't really occur to me at the time that I had been kind of doing stand-up since I was 13. I don't really like to say it this way to, to other comics. It sounds kind of weird. Like, oh, you were, you, know, you were Dave Chappelle in D.C.? It's like, no. But in the Indian community, they had these events, Holi and Diwali. And there were about a thousand Indians in these halls at University of Cincinnati, different halls around campuses and high schools. And I would get up there and do impressions and do original material. And that's what I think he saw. He just goes, you kind of have been doing this. Like, it seems like this is your calling. And I went for it. But that was really it. Then you tell Had you them- watched a lot of stand up growing up? Sorry to cut you off. Uh, yeah, no problem. So had I watched a lot of stand up growing up? The very first stand-up I had ever seen, and we didn't have an HBO, so I'm not really sure how I saw it, but it was HBO. Maybe it was a promotional thing at the time, but I saw Bill Cosby himself, and I saw that really early, and it's not like I was a comic who looked at it and went, wow, I want to do that. The very first time I ever saw somebody do something I want to do was a motivational speaker, and I think it's, is it Joe Matchy who does that joke, and he did it on Last Comic Standing, where he goes, we had a motivational speaker come to my school And at the end of his speech, he asked if if anyone had any questions. And I go, when did you decide to give up on your dreams and become a motivational speaker? (laughs) 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 So insane. And so, you know, I didn't have that electricity, but I was really fascinated. Like the first time you watch Woody Allen do stand up on Annie Hall, and it's just a brand new way of introducing a movie. So I think I had only listened to or seen four albums before I tried it. And besides Bill Cosby himself, it was Dennis Leary, No Cure for Cancer, Dennis Miller, The Off-White Album, oh, yeah. and Stephen Wright, I Have a Pony, and Bill Cosby himself. Pretty good murderer's row of uh, comedy albums there. Uh, yeah, mine was literally very unrelated Bill Cosby himself. That was the only one that I'd seen. Had you what? been doing it for – have you been a consumer of stand-up for a long time and then you nope. tried no, I saw Bill Cosby himself, and I remember vaguely long car rides for vacation. My mom would play Jeff Foxworthy, You Might Be a Redneck. Mm-hmm. And then I remember seeing random episodes of Evening at the Improv, and the ones that stuck out to me were Jake Johansson, Wendy Liebman, Larry Miller, and Stephen Wright. And that was all the stand-up I'd ever seen. And then <clears throat> I had never been to a comedy club until I was in college. And a student government at NKU decided to go to Go Bananas as like a social outing. And I remember that a guy named Ralph Palmer, who was still doing it when I started, was the MC. Eddie Gosling was the feature act. And the Chinaman, Mark, what, I can't think of his last name now, Britton? Yeah, Anyways, he w- he goes by the Chinaman. Um, he was the headliner. And that was the first time I'd ever been to a comedy club. And I did not go to another one until I did my first open mic night. Wow. What about you, PF? Uh, well, as people, I dabbled in it because um, I thought I wrote an article for City Beat. And so I went to the, uh, to the, to the, did the open mic, the Pro-Am. I'm okay at it, I think. I mean, if called upon, I can perform, but I'm always consider myself more of a comedy writer. Uh, I'm mm. great as a trivia, just a funny trivia host. As a stand-up, I'm I'm pretty rubbish at it. I don't I don't I, maybe if I stuck with <laughs> it, you know, because it takes time. People think you can, yeah, people think right. you can get up on stage and just do it. No, it it takes years, and you don't realize it until you actually try to do it. That oh, this is like singing or anything else. Very very few people can get up there and do it right off the bat and do it well. You've got to really grind away at it. So, uh, But the absorbing of it, I think, really helps. Like I, I can't – you know, Jeff Tate's a prime example, but there's even more examples of – especially from like New York and L.A. of people who just worked at comedy clubs that finally decided to try it and they were good instantly. And it was just because they had picked up so much by watching that they were able to – 
I, I, they just had an easier way of, of doing it probably than someone who went in blind, kind of not knowing what they're getting into. I tell comics all the time, like you want to get better, just go watch as much as you try to get on stage, go watch the pros do it. Cause you can learn just as much from that. True. As far as the funniest person in Cincinnati, I think I entered that like four or five times. I am the Cincinnati Bengals of that contest. One and done, man. I'm <laughs> <laughs> so receive. So you you do the contest, you win. You're you're finding success for it locally at, at the very least, but you still have the day job. What at what point did you start thinking like maybe I need to pick between the two? It really came down to age and I turned 30 and I flipped out. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of it, I entered that contest in 1998, but that's not when I say I started because I remember sitting around with Dave Hyden and Jeff Tate and Eric Campbell and I think Dave Waite even and some of these guys. And I said, you know, I'm being asked in these interviews when I started and it's, it's such a start stop answer because I entered that contest, Josh, that you were running in 98. I won it in 99 as a, as a, uh, amateur. And then I took a lot of time off. I never took my week, which was, you know, that was a reward when you won the, the stand-up contest, funniest person in Cincinnati contest, you could come MC for a week. And I didn't do it. John Chung was running it at the time. He's like, when do you want to do it? And I wasn't really sure that I wanted to. And then Dave Chappelle was coming to the university of Cincinnati and similar Josh, what you were talking about with student government, these guys are like, well, you're funny. Why don't you open for Dave Chappelle? And to your point about, Oh, is this just going to be the new normal? Like talk about an entrance and to stand up. And so that's a whole story unto itself. But I did that at the university of Cincinnati. Then I, and uh, well, actually Josh, you're a part of this story because I've told this story so many times, but now you're, you're, you're part of this. So it's great that you guys are here to hear it. So as you may remember, I bombed in front of a thousand people at the University of Cincinnati, which was my school. And I had already transferred there from Case Western. So I couldn't transfer again. I was so embarrassed that I was going to quit school because everybody saw me do it. And I still remember this, of course, because I didn't get 30 seconds into material. They had let a lot of the local element, the Coryville Clifton crowd in, my, the urban crowd, let, let's just say that. And, you know, it, it was really raucous. And I go backstage, I'm holding the microphone, I hand it to Dave Chappelle, and I go, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he goes, what's your name, man? And I'm like, uh, you know, don't worry about my name. I'm just going to go into a corner and crawl and die. And he goes, no, man, he goes, give me your name. I was like, all right, it's Rajiv. He goes, all right, Rajiv, I'm going to go out there. I'm calling you out there in a minute. And he goes out there and they're booing him. They're that raucous, right? And he gets up there. He's like, man, why y'all got to boo a nigga off stage? Like, okay. and they, the crowd goes completely crazy, just completely nuts. He calls me out and he sits me on the side of the stage and he does killing him softly his entire hour long set to me. Like, ain't that right, Rajiv? Like, I'm Kevin Eubanks or Paul Schaefer. And at the end of it, he's like, hey, man, you should come open for me at Go Bananas this weekend. Give it another shot. And I remember I don't go down Friday. And Josh calls me. And he goes, man, where were you last night? Chappelle was asking about you. And I'm like, yeah, right. And you and you, you go, how would I know to say this? I'm telling you that he, you better get your ass down here tonight. And I did. And I opened for him on a Saturday night at Go Bananas. I'd never done it before on a weekend crowd type thing. Went pretty well. Ended up opening up for him for a few more times uh, throughout my career or his career, however you want to say that. And it kind of went from there. So there was a supercharged kind of thing that happened in 2000, and I still kind of wasn't doing it. And I don't know if I'll be able to follow that part of the story, but basically that was 2000. And then I got back into doing stand-up around 02. And was doing it on the side at PNG. It started PNG in 2000. Josh and I were working there at the same time. And then around about 04 is where I really started doing it more in more earnest. And I turned, I went, entered the contest again in 05 as a pro am, and I won it as a pro am or uh, more of a, a professional, however you want to say that, semi pro. And then. I, in 06, I turned 30 and I flipped out because I was born in Hamilton, grew up in Fairfield, went to school in Cleveland and Cincinnati and worked in Dayton. I was an Ohio boy through and through Ohio Joker, like, uh, like Josh's old AIM handle, I think it was. And then finally I go, you know what? 
that's it. I'm out. I'm going to go do something else. And I moved to L.A. and I started doing stand up out here. and I've been doing it full time since 06. Go ahead, Jeff. I remember one story you told me one time when I interviewed you, which I thought was fascinating when you were for, way back even before you were taking stand up seriously. I think you had to, you were chosen to be the entertainment at some sort of big either family function or some community function. And you thought you had to write a whole hour. So you did. <laughs> was, do I, am I recalling that story correctly? Wow, that's interesting. I wonder if that was, you know, it, it's like the Joker. You have a different origin story every single time. No, but like, no, uh, that'd be really great. Like, none of this is true. The Chappelle thing never happened. Uh, Josh Steen is not a real guy. version of uh, Rajiv's trajectory. I, yeah. I, I thought <laughs> that, that was a story. The Tim Burton version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody will make a movie about this and another movie and another movie about the same thing. <laughs> Have you guys heard so, that? I don't know who someone tweeted that. It said uh, it might have been Patton Oswalt. Sounds like him. Uh, that uh, I, did did something happen to Batman when he was younger that made turn him into a crime crusader? Would someone make a movie about that, please? That's <laughs> oh, so good. That's he. I think he still has my favorite tweet I've ever read. Patton Oswalt tweeted years ago: "The McRib has come back nineteen times. Your move, Jesus." <laughs> <laughs> Let me interject here because I feel like you're not being earnest for how you how your work life and your stand up life started to co-mingle after a while, because I remember there was also sure. a point where where you were you were really combining your uh, your progression in stand up with your corporate job. Like I remember you brought me and. <laughs> arguably the biggest comedian in the world right now, Sebastian Maniscalco yeah, and someone else uh, whose name escapes me to go. Roy bananas. Jr. Was it Roy and body McFarlane? Oh my gosh. Talk per- about murderers. Perform, yeah. Wow. For um, uh, Gillette marketing team. Is that right? Yeah, it was for actually the, it, okay. So this is at go bananas. And I had been living in L.A. for a couple of years. And Andy Gibson, who still works at the Peach, he's a brand manager over there. He and I he and I started this thing called Funny Because It's True. It's called Standpoint Agency. If you go to standpointagency.com, it still exists. It's lame dormant, though, for a long time. And it's crazy the number of comics we ended up hiring. But brands can hire us, even still in theory, to help them generate insights. And so – this guy, Kyle, who's the uh, who's now the CMO over at Wilson Sporting Goods, he's got a really big job over there. He took a chance on us. He's like, all right, you know what? We're going to give you a pretty big budget and uh, let's see what y'all can do. And we went to Go Bananas. We called the brand team together. We had these four comics come in, Josh Need, uh, Bonnie McFarlane, and Roy Wood Jr. and Sebastian Maniscalco. And they all came in. And later, by the way, other people who did it included Orny Adams. So this is just like a crazy – Wow. You know, insane uh yeah roster of comics and they came in and y'all did about 20 minutes of material about herbal essences it was hair coloring the uh they do 20 minutes and then they sit down on stage and the brand team can ask them questions and kind of ask the magician how did you get how'd you pull the rabbit out of the hat and i remember bonnie mcfarlane was sitting there and of course she's the woman on the panel and talking about hair coloring and she goes i don't know i just feel like coloring your hair should be a joy not a job and when she said that, all the pens went nuts, all the pens and pencils, and then they went into brainstorming and power dotting and all that. But that became the basis for Herbal Essence's $50 million global restage. And they were, we were heroes. It came out of that session, and Josh was a big part of that. I mean, it, it was a crazy thing that we did. So, yes, I did combine my life as a marketer and a comic. And I feel like when you were – and I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong. But I feel like – you know, you, you were like me, but better at it than me of really approaching stand up at every level from when you first started up until now and, and now even more so than ever of like understanding that it's it's a job that requires hours, not just being funny when you're on stage, whether it's like building a mailing list and having a consistent newsletter and providing updates to keep your name at the front of people's minds in between the months or possibly years 
in which they see you at a live show, that that is so important in this business. And I feel like you have always done that. And I don't know if that's a takeaway from PNG or like where you, what, if that like was a conscious effort, like, is that like your marketing background kicking in or is it, you know, something that was like very, um, intentional on your part? So I really appreciate that. I'll, I'll, I'll answer that a number of ways. First of all, when people ask me for advice on standup, I say, we'll ask Josh Need. He's better. But I usually <laughs> say, I usually say, I say this. I go, look, bring everything to the stage. Okay. I was an engineer. I was a marketer. I've done a lot of stuff with politics, whatever. Whatever you are, man. And Maz Jobrani talked about this on my podcast. He said, look, you know what the audience wants from you, even if you can't do that great of an impression or you can't dance that well, even if you just do a little bit, the crowd will go crazy because they're not expecting it from you. And whatever you can do, whether you can dance or if you can rap or you can whatever, if you use that to, to entertain people and even if you don't do it and if you consider that hacky and I want to be more of a purist, that's fine. But that's still in you and that perspective, that point of view is still in you. It doesn't mean you actually have to rap, but you bring the knowledge of how a rap is constructed and flow and rhythm and beats. And that is in the rhythm of the way you speak. So I say, bring it all to the stage. Josh, you were the first one who coached me on the idea of when people ask, Hey, let me know when you're going to be at go bananas again, add them to your newsletter. That was it. That was such a great if then statement going back to my engineering days. It was such great advice when people are like, Hey man, keep me posted. You, you then ask, Hey, is that cool if I add you to my monthly newsletter? And I still do that to this day. I haven't missed a month of sending it out. I don't know how long it's been. I'm on issue 170 or whatever it is. I know that because I bought it. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were the man. You actually helped set up my first website. Uh, this is back in, I think the late nineties as well. So it's really kind of interesting because, you know, the whole idea of being business in or creative in, uh, Josh, you're like this too. And I, and I, I was really disappointed when I met a lot of comics who weren't funny in real life. IRL, they weren't really that much of a blast to hang out with. And I didn't know that. I didn't know the trope at the time of, well, they were kind of more screwed, sad up, depressive characters. And, you know, I have a few friends who are comics, but that's why I'm not friends with a lot of comics. They're kind of doubters. And you're, you know, I feel like there are 20% of us who are more like fun loving life at the party. You're sweating some lawn jockey and you're the fun loving party guy, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> great. I, yeah. I, know it. I, I, I knew you'd get the reference. And <laughs> so that was always the thing. Like, I was talking to Dwayne Perkins about this, the comic, and he's out here. And we were talking about the idea of being likable. And he gets told that he's likable a lot. And he goes, I love that. But he's like, at the same time, I just want you to think I'm funny. Like, is that a dig when you say I'm likable? And it's not. But it kind of like the business in thing. It's like I'm a naturally funny person. And I just happy to do, happen to do stand up. And that's something that I want people like when you hang out with me in real life. I think I'm just as funny as I am on stage or not funny, depending on, on what you think. But we could talk a little bit more about my existential crisis. I'm making it sound like I just smoothly went out to L.A. and that wasn't it at all. I'm happy to be a lot more vulnerable than this. But, you know, in terms of sound bites, I guess those, <laughs> those are the answers. We don't have that kind of production for sound bites. They're going to either have to listen to all of it or none of it. There you go. <laughs> so you've also gone down a path of like really embracing like the Indian community and you know, like there's so many things that like great stories you could tell from the like touring with Russell Peters and Kevin Nealon and, you know, but was it a conscious decision for you to really try to become, or I don't know the right way to say this, but like to embrace like the Indian community and like be an Indian comic in the Indian community or did that sort of happen naturally? It's a great question, you know, and it, speaking of existential crises, that's that's been one for a long time, because I remember talking to Jeff Jenna about this and he's been doing stand up a long time. And he had set me up with some great people out here in, in L.A. and in Orange County and just a really good guy back in the, the Cincinnati area. And, you know, he told he gave me a couple of pieces of really good advice before I moved out here. He, he put his finger in my chest. I still remember this. It was, it was like a young man, you know, one of these. And he just goes um it's not who you know, it's who knows you. Wow. And 
I loved that. He goes, you can go around all day long telling people you know Dave Chappelle, but unless Dave Chappelle, when asked, says that he knows you, then it doesn't really count. And I thought that was super helpful. The other thing that he told me was, and this is more of an answer to your question, which I've totally now blanked out on. Wow, I don't normally do that. What was your question? About the about performing like like right for the really, indian community yeah. got it my bad okay so he uh i you know i kind of lamented to him that i had become fairly well established in the indian community and he you know i remember he said to me he goes well look man you're you made a decision to go out and i'm not gonna say chase money but get gigs that were paying you thousands of dollars and which comic wouldn't do that? Most would. And he goes, a lot of people get a they get a day job. They get a gig in town and they're a barista at Starbucks or whatever. And they get up at, at open mics and they, they stay in town. You've decided to go hit the road. And so you you sort of reap what you sow. You're, you're fairly well established in that community. So it's kind of become a trap in a way. But at the same time, you know, when I made a video called I am Indian, <laughs> I don't know that you could be any more embracing of your roots than that. It's like, why, why am I getting booked on all these Indian gigs? Well, you made a video called I am Indian. So that's hilarious. But, but you know what? Like it's kind of one of those things that if you can, if you can pay the bills doing something that may not be your first choice, but you're good at it and it, it doesn't, maybe take as much effort as like following something that you really want to do. It makes what you following what you really want to do a little bit more attainable because like, there's not that pressure of like putting all your eggs into one basket, right? Like, so you can, you can know that you always have this thing over here to fall back on, whether that's a degree or performing for the Indian community or whatever that is. And knowing that, really lets you take the pressure off of doing the things that you want to do, right? That's so well said, because when I made an, a video, and this is not a joke, I made a video called I am Ohioan, and I made a video called I am American, and I love those videos, but they don't resonate as strongly, and a lot of it is because when you think of an Ohioan, you don't really think of me, and so it's not like I'm this going to be this great spokesperson for Ohio, even though I was all set to come do an Ohio world tour this summer and talk to people about politics. It's a swing state and an election year. I know it's trending more red now, but I was going to come perform in a lot of local diners and, and near steel mills where a lot of my friends work. And I was, I was setting it up and then Corona happened, but it kind of checked me back into the world of going, you know, I, I got, I have gotten so many notes from parents in this country and in America who have said, you know, hey, my kids grew up here. I was born in India is what they're writing to me. They're like, look, I was born in India. My kids are, were born here and they were never proud to be Indian. They never really wanted to listen to any of the music or watch the movies or any of that. And that's how I grew up, too. And they go, they watched your video, your two minute video called I am Indian. And now they're proud to be Indian. And, you know, I teared up. I'm like, dude, that's what every artist wants. That's what every single person who creates content wants is notes like that. So it doesn't matter with whom you're resonating. If you're if you're getting that kind of support from a community, my gosh, how do you not give it back to them? You know, absolutely. It's like you get emails like that and it changes everything. And I don't know. There's just uh, I get well, I get stuff like that once in a while and it just. You, you, for, you take it for granted, you know, like the fact that you could show up to a comedy club and over the course of four days, you know, maybe a couple thousand people see you and laugh and then leave. And the, to you, they were an audience, but each one of them, you know, looks at you as like a, it's like a one on one conversation to them. But to you, mm -hmm. it's a one on 250 Many. conversation. Right. And so That's you forget so about that like one-on-oneness and when you get an email that reminds you of it and it's not just a, I think you're really funny, but it's like, you know, I was having a rough day or I've, mm -hmm. it's the first time I've been out since I've got divorced or somebody mm -hmm. passed away or whatever, mm -hmm. like whatever it is, you just, you, sometimes it's like, you remember like, yeah, this is a job and it's something that I've been doing for a long time that I don't necessarily think about as much anymore. 
but you can really impact people on a, on a, like a crazy emotional level every time you do a show and not even know, ever know about it. So true. That is, that's so powerful. And, you know, I've always been fascinated PF by, by Josh's celebrity in Cincinnati. You know, you think about <laughs> the people, it's true. The people who become famous, who, who become, you're more than just a local Cincinnati celebrity. I'm not, I'm not reducing you to that, but, it, I, but since we're both for, since we're from Cincinnati, you know, the only people who are famous there are going to be newscasters like Rob Braun. You're going to have people who are Bengals and Reds and, and, and politicians. But how many people who have not like hit a ball or del- set up, you know, a piece of news on the air like Anchorman? Who, who like who's a fa- who's a local celebrity in Cincinnati? I mean, you. I can't really think of too many people who are maybe the naked cowboy, but then he went to New York. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think a lot of Cincinnatians know that. I mean, it's kind of, it's a huge accomplishment. Well, thank you for saying it. I don't know that I agree with it, but, um, you know, it was a conscious decision that I made for sure to, to, you know, weigh moving to Los Angeles or New York or Chicago and trying to see if there was a bigger level for me to reach in the entertainment industry or being content with the opportunities that would be provided in Cincinnati. And at the time that I made that decision, it was really more about the ease of travel. You know, I looked at like where I was going uh, on a weekly basis and how much easier it was to get those places from Cincinnati uh, than it would be to fly from New York or LA. And You know, I got lucky that sort of the mentality of the entertainment industry shifted from, well, if you're not in L.A. or New York, then you don't deserve to be on TV to like, let's find the, you know, let's 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 expand our our uh, net. And so every credit I have has happened while I lived in Cincinnati and I never felt the need to move. And then after a while, I just started to realize, you know what, there's a lot of cool stuff being done here that I can choose to be a part of. I can also have a, a great life for my family and be around the, the, the extended family and the friends that I've grown up with my whole life. So I've just tried to make the most of living here with whatever opportunities that there are. And it just seems like every year there keep, you know, there keeps presenting more and more of them. Cincinnati is your India. what you what you said sums up you know i mean obviously it's not easy to travel to india back but yeah i found a community of people it's the same that's wow that's beautiful it's the same story just writ large well i also remember and i think it's sort of subconsciously but you know i would every comic that came to go bananas when i was emceeing and would give me their intro we're so proud to say all the way from Los Angeles or all the way from New York. And I'm like, right. I thought you said you were from Evansville. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> I never had that. Even when I lived in L.A., it was like if I ever had a chance to be uh, on TV or in print or be introduced, like I was always very much like, yeah, tell them I'm from Cincinnati. Like I just have this hometown pride that I feel like yeah. a lot of people from here have. And that's a big part of why they – they never leave the city, let alone the suburbs that they they grow up in and their yeah. generations before them have grown up in. And so I think that because so few people that have an opportunity to be on like national television or a national radio show that proudly say I'm from Cincinnati and you try to represent, you know, the way that like Nate Bargatze does from Nashville or Tennessee. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like um And I think that the people from Cincinnati appreciate hearing that, you know, I think that's why people love Nick Lachey so much. I mean, he's like Mm -hmm. one of the most solid dudes I've ever met in my life and he could not be nicer, but he also could not be more proud to be from here. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's a guy with his own show on MTV who's wearing a Cincinnati Bearcats hat. You know, it's like, right. Like people love that he's proud to be from here. And I definitely took a page out of his book. You know, and 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 earnestly, you know, it's not that it's not a, a show that I put on, but it's like, man, I'm I'm proud to be from here. Fun no, the show you put on was farting in Jessica Simpson's face. <laughs> That's right. Fun, that was, 
again, that was fun, for him. Fun Nick Lachey's, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that one. Fun Nick Lachey's story <laughs> real quick, uh, and a, a, which crosses with P&G. My wife was doing an event, and Nick Lachey was doing something for the event, and she had to escort him from whatever the green room area was to the actual stage thing. And they're walking through the building. He's like, my hands are so cold, feel them. And she's holding, he's holding my wife's hands, and she, I'm like, oh, I feel like Homer Simpson. Whoa, an actor hit on my wife. And she was like, <laughs> he was just Andrew's I'm like, yeah, sure, honey. <laughs> My wife still got it. <laughs> That's great. It's good impression, too, by the way. Thank you. He's so he's so handsome, though, that like if oh. I if he asked me to feel his hands, like my <laughs> wife would be jealous. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Like he's just like he like. There's no. He's an exception to everybody's rule. Yeah, he's the he's the I, real I deal. Yeah, I, I just my mind just goes to the cheesiest line possible. Yeah, it feels about ninety eight degrees. Oh, <laughs> ouch! I love it. I love it. Terrible f. Rajiv, I think the reason Rajiv uh, and I connected so well in the very beginning was because he was he he could never get over how good I was at knowing movie quotes, and he would always say. No one has ever been close to being as good at me at, me at uh, remembering movie quotes. It was a huge compliment. We were standing around. You know, you know, it's funny because back in high school at Fairfield, I was friends with a guy who, you know, he, he was a social climber. I'm not going to say who he was because I'm going to take him down pretty hard. It's good guy. Still friends with him. But a social climber. And he would be really cool to you in class, but whenever you were around like the footballers, football players and cheerleaders and all the cool kids, and he was, you know, kind of gave you the cold shoulder. What are those, right? And so took him a long time to kind of get over that. So sometimes in this game in Hollywood or just anything really, people will, will pay you compliments just one-on-one, -on -one, but they won't go on the record, right? They won't go public and they won't say it amongst the cool kids. And I remember, I think it was maybe a brouhaha or maybe it was earlier than that, but we were standing around with a bunch of comics and Josh goes, I have never met anyone better at movie quotes than Rajiv. And this was just in front of a bunch of people. And I was, I was so complimented by that, man. I was just like, wow, that, that's a big deal to say it in front of all these people. And, uh, yeah. No, well, you know, yeah. I worked at Blockbuster when I was in college and uh, and I've always been movie quote guy. And it was like, you know, like the guys that I worked with at Blockbuster, like they were they were the best. And it was like no one else outside of, of that circle. I was ever like I was like it was like a badge of honor. It was like, wow, I'm really proud because I've watched movies nonstop. And then it's like I meet this guy who's like, oh, did you just quote swiggers? Like it was like not even yeah. like. You know, it's not like it's Star Wars or stuff that, you know, yeah. everybody knows. It was Iconic. like really obscure, really obscure lines. And I just, I don't know. I've always loved that. There was a guy uh, that he, he came to a show when I was in Cleveland and he told me he was going to follow me on Twitter. And his uh, his Twitter handle was Bobby Rizigliano, which is this name from the movie Made another great John Favreau, Vince <laughs> Vaughn movie. But uh, Vince Vaughn is telling people his name's Bobby Rossigliano because he doesn't want to get in trouble. And that's actually John Favreau's name in the movie. So this guy who's like looking for someone is like, what's your name? He's like Bobby Rossigliano. And then he asked John Favreau what his name is. He's like Bobby Rossigliano. And then he's like, Jesus, is everybody's name Bobby Rossigliano? <laughs> and it's such an obscure movie and an obscure line. And when someone dedicated their Twitter name to it, I was like, this guy, he's allowed in. He's allowed in the circle. Yeah. That's that's so good. Uh, uh, we're finally watching The Sopranos. Never seen it. And so we're my wife and I are sitting down going through it. We're on season three. And without giving anything away, no spoilers. I, I, I don't think you should ever give anything away. Not Titanic, nothing. And so <laughs> I, I there was a part where where the guy who plays Spider in Goodfellas. And this isn't going to be plot specific or anything else. But, you know, he shoots a guy in the foot. And the guy's like screaming because it happens. And you're just like, dude, that's such a great callback. Like the only people who I mean, obviously, a lot of people who would watch Goodfellas would watch would watch The Sopranos. But this is many years later. This is this is a decade later. And the same actor who plays him shoots a guy in the foot. And you're like, dude, that's really well done. Good. Good <laughs> on you, Sopranos. That it, was pretty solid. It, it's funny what oh, people know, because um, we have a we have a line of like friends inspired stuff at the T-shirt company. 
But I would reckon only me and our digital marketing gal are the big Friends fans, and she's uh, like 28, and I'm 54. But uh, I we constantly do Friends quizzes, and I just on the on the G chat just between me and her because I know nobody else will get them. We had a we post something about the zoo, and I typed to her, sent the picture of. Uh, Dan Castellente, who had a little cameo on Friends, and said, "Do you believe everything the zoo tells you?" And I don't think anybody else would have gotten that. But You're yeah, right. so it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> See? Right. So there you go. Even though it's, it's Seinfeld, a, yes, Friends, yeah. no. Yeah, that's, that's so funny that they're from the same era. Yet that's it seems to be like two different camps, and I love them both. But uh, it, it's just kind of strange how that how that works out like that sometimes. I don't know if Josh, you have a theory on this, or PF, you may yourself have a theory on it, but. I was always a Seinfeld guy, but I got into it much later because it came out during the bubble of high school and college. And my friend Joe, with whom I actually just went to Antarctica, we're still really good friends. And his dad actually worked at at P&G for a long time. And, you know, he would tell me about it in college. This was back in 94, 95. He's like, you should watch the show Seinfeld. It's it's totally your kind of thing. I'm like, I don't really watch TV anymore. And he's like, I think you're missing out. And and for years, he would hold it over me. Why well, he's such a nice guy, he wouldn't. But I was like, dude, you were really right about that. That show was really something. I caught up with it in the last season. And I started watching it because I was interning at Wright Pad Air Force Base. And I, I the only I, I was spending a, a summer up in Dayton. And we would get off of work and come home. And there was nothing to do at this apartment, Woodman Park Apartments. And my roommate and I would sit down and we would watch this show called Seinfeld at 5 o'clock and 5.30. It was already, it was in syndication already. And I just completely fell in love with it. And it, it was the Dream Cafe. It was the Pakistani one. That was the very first one oh, I yeah, happened yeah. to see. <laughs> and I just completely fell in love with that. I thought it was the – you'll have the only Pakistani restaurant. So it was the same idea of like – Josh, you're going to be the only like major comic in Cincinnati. There you go. So that's yeah. it. That's hilarious. Yeah, I uh, I didn't get into it until afterwards either. But I also think that even if I'd been introduced to it, you know, while I was in high school and college, that I certainly would not have appreciated a lot of the jokes, mm-hmm. uh, but also just just the writing and the like the structure mm-hmm. of it, the way that I can appreciate it now just as like a, a professional comedian of just going like how genius the comedy was mm-hmm. or alone, how memorable a lot of the jokes were. That's how I feel about like 30 rock and even the office, like mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. the office that I've started to go back and watch again from the beginning. I'm just like, this is just so well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It's, I, I think that, Seinfeld and David, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David are the Paul McCartney, John Lennon of comedy writing. Yeah, I I have no problem with that. I agree with that. Crazy. Oh, man. Crazy. Dude, there's yeah, like, to we it. haven't yeah. gotten into any stories. We haven't gotten into any Russell Peters stuff or Kevin Neal and stuff. Like, or, or, I, I, man in the middle to, or, uh, I didn't get to hear the uh, Lisa Lampanelli story again. <laughs> Lisa Lampanelli <laughs> story. one of my all-time favorites. Oh, but, wait, I got to hear this one. Uh, I don't know. Can we say that one? Can we, Can we say that one? I don't know. I mean, what, you you may have to tell your version or what you know about it because it's it, I'm the one in it, but I don't know how much anybody else remembers about it. Well, I just remember – I remember her be, not being nice to you, calling you a terrible, terrible name. And in a, in a very selfish way, it made me feel better because everyone loved her, like loved her. Like worshipped mm-hmm. her, and I had the worst experience with her not long before that at Joker's in Dayton. And oh. then when that happened to you, I was just like, "Oh, good, somebody else can can understand why I'm not a fan." <laughs> what happened? You can't tell your story either. Oh, mine's not as harsh as yours. She just wasn't very kind to me and uh, would not let me sell merchandise and sort of belittled me because I was even. Uh, I even wanted to sell T-shirts after a show. Oh, wow. Ate something. Yeah, but she did. <laughs> but there was no name calling. There's no name calling. There's no crying in baseball. It, it was really insane because it has a happy ending. So let me just say this. Like when now I think of Lisa Lampanelli, I think of the woman whom I ran into either at William Morris or CAA, the talent firms out here. And I remember telling Russell Peters that and he goes, I thought those were talent agencies. What are you doing there? And- <laughs> <laughs> Zing. <laughs> Zing. That was pretty solid. So- I've never met him, by the way. And I just hear he is the best. He's the best. He is really a comics comic. He's so funny. 
he's such a great host. You know, you go over to his house and there will be a ton of people there. And his mom had cooked chicken and I'm in the kitchen and he's like, man, have some. And I'm getting chicken and he notices. He's like, get some bones, man. Get some meat. You're getting all gravy. Like he's got, you know, 100 people at his house and he will take the time to notice whether you're getting bones and meat in your chicken or you're just getting broth. It's crazy. I mean, he, he has that level of detail of understanding. I think he wants to make sure everybody's having a great time. He, he's a really great guy. And I told him the Lisa Lampanelli story and it ends well in the sense that I ran into her and I played the story back to her and she goes, I actually remember you as the nice young man who apologized to me. And it was kind of this potpourri of emotions because here's what happened for the people who have no idea, which is most people listening to this. I was... I don't know if I was featuring or hosting. I might have been. No, I was hosting and Dan Cummins was featuring. Was it Dan Cummins? He's a Washington State guy, right? Yes. Yes, he is. Okay. Hilarious guy. Super nice guy. Speaking of nice people, too. And I was hosting. He was middling. And Lisa Lampanelli was was closing. And he and I were hanging out in the green room at Go Bananas. And Lisa Lampanelli comes She wasn't quite in the green room yet, but she shows up and I think she might have been talking to someone or whatever. And then she said, yeah, and I'll I'll use the A form of of nigga. Obviously, I'll say that because I said it already, but I will not use the ER form because she called me that. She goes, no one told me a sand N-I-G-G-E-R is going to be on the show. First line out the gate. That's what she said to me. And I was really taken aback because that's a really hard word. I don't use that word. And I and it's really kind of crappy for brown people because black people at least can use it back. You can use like we're stuck. Like people call us that. But I can't play the word back to you. Like we don't own that word at all. We have no lease on it, nor do we want it, nor do I want to be able to say it. And it was like in Talking Funny where where uh, Jerry Seinfeld says, I have not found the humor in that word, nor do I seek it. And that's why he's Jerry Seinfeld, because he can tag it with such a great wise line like that, nor do I seek it. So she calls me this and I say something like, yeah, my camel's parked outside, right, to kind of downshift into small talk as uh, – as he would say in One Harry Met Sally. So I downshift into small talk. I'm like, yeah, my camel's parked outside. And she hits me a couple more times. And it was really, again, sort of like caught off guard. I mean, she's a pretty famous comic and whatever else. And I've never really respected her comedy because all she does is just, it's very easy just to throw insults at people. I don't think that really takes much talent at all. So I didn't really respect her anyway. But then also when she said all that stuff, it was like, dude, you it's like seven. You, you just met me. Like, how, how are you talking to me like that? And then she uh, and I go, oh, I, I better I better not say much more because I'm in present. I'm in the presence of royalty. I know you're the queen of mean. Right. That's all I said. She disappears. I think it was Mikey Kurtz who came back and goes, you got to go. I go, oh, we're where? Like, we're starting? He goes, no, you got to leave. I go, why? Like, what's up? I I didn't make the connection at all. Like, it was so minor to me. I was like, go where? Like, do I have to pick something up? He goes, no, you're off the show. I go, oh, was I double booked? Like, like, still, like, like, the benefit of the doubt. Assuming that that's like, what's going on? He goes, well, you offended Lisa Lampanelli, so you have to leave. And I go, this is a joke, right? He goes, no, it's not a joke. And you really have to go. And he goes, I'm really sorry. He was really apologetic, whatever. And I don't know if it was Mikey. I think it was Mikey. So at any rate, Mikey, that's how memorable you are. So I leave. (laughs) And the next day, I'm writing with Dan Cummins at Starbucks in Blue Ash. And she came in. And it's not that much of a surprise because the hotel for comics is right down the street around the corner. And then I said, hey, I got up right away. I'm like, I'm really sorry. I'm not really sure what happened there last night. But I apologize for whatever it is that I said. You know, you, you, there's a pecking order here. And she said to me, I go, could I just know? Like, I'm not trying to defend myself. I'm not trying to be defensive. But what did I say that was? And she goes, it was your tone. I go, OK. But in fairness, you called me a pretty bad word. She goes, all right. But there's a pecking order to comedy. Like, you know, I'm higher than you. If I meet Don Rickles, then I have to be different to him. I have to kind of lose to him. She ruined Don Rickles for me. Like, I kind of knew who he was barely, but I couldn't watch him for years. So I'm like, screw this Don Rickles. Who's this guy? And then finally, I'm like, oh, he's a legend. Like, what? He's just amazing, amazing comedians of all time. But it really messed me up for a long time. And it really got me to hate comedians 
in in a, in a kind of a big way. Because I'm like, you guys are supposed to, be able to take a joke. What is wrong? Like, how come you guys are so sensitive? This is the ridiculous. queen of mean of all people. Oh, yes. So that was the Lisa Lampanelli story. I've never told it before. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. How about that, P.S.? Since you sure it's podcast exclusive, exclusive. That's exclusive. right. That's right. <laughs> P.F., you can call it the one about Lisa Lampanelli. There we go. <laughs> well, there you good. go. I'll send that one to Sam. <laughs> well, we're going to have to do a part two to this. Absolutely. Because, uh, we didn't get to a whole bunch so of stuff. There's so much left unsaid. When are you back Love. in town again? When? when uh, I mean, I know comedy is obviously on a hiatus for right now, but are you coming home to visit? I really want to. I really want to see my parents in Fairfield and just get home in general. But I just had a friend call me last night from Fairfield saying, when are you coming to town? I guess that's a question between him and you, the guys that you're asking, because I just figured we're all grounded. But I was supposed to come in March. I'd love to come back. But are you guys traveling at all? We're, we're not traveling. We're just staying here. Well, I'm saying that with the assumption of, you know, like we'll be quote unquote back to normal at some point. I didn't know if you, uh, I, I think restrictions are being lifted here mm-hmm. over the next couple of weeks. Uh, sure. you know, people are going to be eating in restaurants. I don't, I don't think air travel will be too far behind. True. Cincinnati be the first place I come. All right. a boy. Yeah. And how can people, uh, how can people follow your, your comedy, your comedy schedule, see more of you? You can sign up for my newsletter per Josh Sneed. <laughs> at, at funnyindian.com you can follow me at funny indian and you don't have to be indian to do so you know you're talking about <laughs> you know uh, having having something like a steady job and that is kind of what the indian community and the south asian community has been for me but it has allowed me to have my podcast to do my talk show to interview people just like you guys are doing here and you know i'm i'm really blessed i'm super happy to be able to do the number of gigs i do for general market audiences and then still be able to do you know, keep a foot in the Indian community. So it's, I'm a proud Indian. I'm a proud, a proud Fairfield Indian too. Proud Cincinnatian. And, uh, <laughs> I never noticed there that. There we go. Yeah, that's it. The proud Fairfield Indian. I'll stop right there. How did I never make that connection? Oh my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. So I've funny. been on your newsletter so long that it was before you had added this feature that like greets people by their first name. Yeah. And so mine say, hey, customer. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to update that then. No, no, it's hilarious. It makes me laugh. It literally makes me laugh every month that I'll get an email from Rasheed and it says, hey, customer, it's the fun <laughs> newsletter. It's like, hey, boss. Yeah, it's, it's just like the, like a lame way of saying like, hey, what's up, killer? Hey, customer. That's really lame. So, but that's how long I've been on the train, man. Since amazing. before, was a, that was a feature. So check out funnyin.com and you'll have, I'm sure you have links to all your social media and, and video clips and everything on there. I do. It's at funny Indian on Instagram and most of the social media out there. But yeah, go to funnyindian.com and you'll uh, you'll jump off to all this other all, all the other portals. <laughs> and then, and one- then uh, the last thing we ask yep. is for our guests to give us a code word that is a coupon people can use when they order online. That will be good for 20% off their order until the next episode comes out. So you get to pick it. What would you like your coupon code to be? Sexual chocolate. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> he good. He good. He good. Um, that's so funny. That was one of the first shirts Darren and I ever did was the Randy Watson World Tour. <laughs> Funniest scene I've ever seen in any movie. So funny. So funny. Um, All right. So there it is. Sexual chocolate. Uh, PF will make sure that goes in with the space and without. Okay. Uh, Yes. Both ways. Both ways. (laughs) And uh, sexual chocolate will save you 20% on on your next order from Scentsy Shirts. And that's good until the next podcast comes out. So Indeed. Thank you for your time today. Old yes, friend. This is so much fun. Thanks for having me. All thanks, right. guys. This was a blast, and I'm so honored to have done it with you guys. And thanks for all your time. Just a blast catching up with y'all. Yep. Yeah, thanks we got Dave. we got to do it again soon. For so, sure. Uh, I'd love to. On behalf of uh, my partner Darren Overholzer, who is working tirelessly right now to make sure all the 
coronavirus face coverings get uh, shipped out to everyone. And uh, the affable producer and co-host PF, our guest Rajiv, I am Josh Need, telling you thank you for watching Cincy Shirts podcast. Have a good day. There's dancing behind movie scenes, behind the movie scenes. Sagirani, she's the one that keeps the dream alive from the morning past the evening to the end of the life. Brilliant fool of Asher on the 45, well, it's a brilliant fool of Asher on the Rajiv Satyal, and uh, playing right there is a band called Corner Shop, or kind of the, I guess, the musical opposite number of Rajiv in some ways. They are, uh, their parents are all Indian, so they are first-generation British Indians, I guess, and uh, like Rajiv in comedy, uh, embraced uh, the mainstream lifestyle of Britain while also uh, giving a nod to their Indian heritage. That song, of course, a lot of cultural references to Indian culture, and uh, you might be more familiar with the Fat Boy Slim remix of that tune, but I like the original better. That's a, that's quite a banger there. So anyway, um, Greg Warren, who they talked about at the beginning of the show, we're going to try to get him on the podcast. He, too, a former PNGer who turned to stand-up comedy. He's a lot of fun, uh, and we're certainly going to get him on the podcast here soon. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, or someone you'd like to have us back on the podcast, email us, podcast at cincyshirts.com. Put podcast guest in the subject line. Maybe give us uh, one or two sentences about why you think uh, that person would be a good guest, or why you'd want to have that person back on again. If there's that we didn't cover because we've had the haunted Cincinnati guy on a couple times. Keyswater was been on twice, uh, once just talking about TV, once talking about WKRP exclusively. So if you want to have someone that we've had on and say, hey, you guys didn't talk about such and such, hey, more than happy to reach out again and have those folks back on. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already, as always, go back and check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives, all 117 episodes back there. You will dig each and every one of them. And as I said, we were discussing this a couple of days ago, uh, Josh and I, even if you don't know who the guest is or it's you know someone you haven't really heard of or it's just a, a local restaurateur or someone like that, everybody's got a great story. Trust us. We've, uh, we've been at this a long time. You know what we're doing. You can trust us. So today's show is produced by me with all from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia, actually. And you can find all of their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find Midgetees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, uh, Philadelphia, as mentioned, at OldSchoolShirts.com. Lots of old sports teams, you know, defunct, no longer around, all that fun stuff. Uh, old shopping centers, restaurants, radio stations as a section of video games. So uh, all kinds of things like that I'm sure you'll all enjoy. It's like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And of course, the promo code for this episode is sexual chocolate. That is uh, two words, or I'll make it one word. You can use either one. And uh, apparently that is some sort of movie reference. I don't know. It went right by me. So, uh, But anyway, you can use that to take 20%. Whether you know it or not, you can use that to take 20% off uh, your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Hey, here's a hack. You can use it uh, once at each site. There you go. How's that? So follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye